If you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Chronicles 7.14. Post tenebrous lux. And I'll explain that in a moment. In fact, you have the explanation there in your hands on the sermon note page. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Father, if there's ever a verse that our nation needs, it's that verse there in verse 14. Again, Lord, I want to ask your favor to be shown on your people, on your church that there would be a revival in the land, in the church. That you would raise us up to be your voice, to be salt and light, to be your witness in a very dark age. Lord, the task that you have called the church to has not always been easy. But it's been right because it's been at your command. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Job, Job had gone through a period of dark days and of trial and tribulation in his life. In the Latin Vulgate translation of Scripture, Job 17, 12, Job cries out, After darkness I hope for light. Now, the Latin is our title for today, Post Tenebrous Looks. Literally it means, After darkness, light. Now, why do I use that phrase this morning as the title? Because that phrase became the very motto of the Protestant Reformation. Now, perhaps the most famous part of the Reformation that just about everybody is aware of today is when Martin Luther walked up to that door, uh, the church at Wittenberg, and nailed his 95 theses to that door. But while that was a spark, that was only one small part of the events. There were many reformers. You had the magisterial reformers. Those were men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli who wanted to bring reforms to the church working from within the structures of the existing church. Then you had the radical reformers such as your forefathers as Baptists, the Anabaptists, radical reformers who basically broke completely away from the church believing that it had become so corrupt 
It needed a whole fresh new beginning. Well, whether magisterial or radical, the reformers believed that the Roman church had plunged the people into darkness. But in returning the common man to the teachings and the authority of the Word of God, they were convinced that after darkness there could be born a new period of light. And hence their motto, post-Tenebrux, looks. After darkness, light. Now folks, if we ever needed a new period of light in the midst of darkness, surely it is today. Listen to the words of Benjamin Franklin at the Constitution Convention, June 28, 1787. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer that I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without His concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our local interest. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to the future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Then Abraham Lincoln wrote, It is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. To confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Now folks, that's been our heritage until fairly recently. Listen to one modern writer in his book, How Far We've Drifted. He writes, and I quote, We're entering a new dark age brought on by relativism, radical individualism, and materialism. People have grown accustomed to the dark so that they don't even realize that the lights are out. That reminds me of a question someone had for for Helen Keller after she became a Christian. They asked her, aren't you bothered by the fact that you have to live your entire life in darkness? She replied, no, I am much more concerned for those who have light but still walk in darkness. Now we see in our text for today that it is God's blessing on a land that brings about prosperity to that land. 
Some are suggesting today with the choices that we are making in America as a collective people, can we really say one and all without any kind of distinction, can everybody really say with integrity, God bless America? Can God bless America? Well, according to the Old Testament, with some of the conditions God laid down for blessing nations, it would, it would seem like the answer to that question would be no. There are conditions attached to blessing. There are actions that bring blessings and there are actions that bring cursings and it would seem like we're making too many choices today that would bring about cursings while we ask for blessings. That's been the common danger of nations. Now what Second Chronicles promises is that God has a remnant of His people. God always preserves for Himself a remnant. And what they do themselves, they need to see that they can make a tremendous difference. Again, we're not Israel. We're the church. But principles apply for we are included surely in that phrase, if my people. I don't think nations today can claim that verse in the same way Israel could in the Old Testament. But again, I think God's people within nations can certainly claim that verse. Now when we look at this verse, we could say that God's people in a land have much to say about God's blessing on that particular land. What we do definitely has a bearing on what God does. You know, there are so many people in the world today saying all we need is love. And surely we do need more love. After all, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He's talking about love within the church body among brothers and sisters in Christ. So obviously we, we need more love. But we see in this text that God is after a holy people. A holy people who respond in righteousness to God's truth will be a blessing to a nation. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning from verse 14 is the participants. The participants. He says here, if my people. Now I want you to think about the original audience that he's addressing here. Go, go in your minds all the way back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God appeared to Abram and said, Abram, I want you to leave your father's land and I'm going to carry you to a new land that I will show you and in that land I am going to build a nation from your descendants. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens above or the sand on the seashore. And God did that. God led Abram to the new land, the land, the promised land, what we would now today obviously call the land of Israel. And then in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, we see that 
that God had brought his people out of Egypt. They'd been in bondage over 400 years uh, in Egypt as slaves and God heard their cries. God heard their groaning and he raised up a leader, a deliverer, Moses, and he led them out of the land of bondage and he carried them 40 years through the wilderness to the promised land. God gave them leaders in the promised land who were supposed to be a blessing to them and lead them wisely and correctly. Saul was the first king. He was the people's choice. They chose him because he was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. And when they saw him and he was a head taller than everybody else and they liked the way he looked, they said, he's the one we want to be the leader over us. And so God said to Samuel, anoint him the king. He's the one they want. And Saul failed miserably. And God took the kingdom away from him and gave it to another, King David, who would have a heart after God. David wanted to build a temple for God, but God wouldn't allow it. He said, no, that's going to be the role that your son Solomon will have. Well, in the context of chapter 7 here, we see that Solomon has just completed the building of the temple. He's been caught up in prayer. He's been dedicating the temple to God. If you were to look back at chapter 6, you would see what some of Solomon's petitions have been. In verse 21 he says, And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants your people Israel and when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance many other verses there in chapter 6 that explain to us the, the petitions that Solomon was making and so what we have here in verse 14 of chapter 7 is God's response to Solomon's prayers. God was pleased by Solomon's efforts with the temple. Now today, of course, we are the temple, the people of God, the bride of Christ. And I think when we give our energies and our attention to the bride of Christ, likewise that is pleasing to God. God responded to Solomon with both promises and warnings. God promised blessing or cursing on the land in the Old Testament depending on what the people did. Now in the Old Testament, the land factored in in a major way. And so God's favor could be seen, for example, in abundant harvest. His disfavor could be seen in natural disasters, maybe floods or famines. I, I think of when Ahab and Jezebel were king and queen over the northern kingdom. 
after Israel split to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and, and Jezebel and Ahab were king and queen over the northern area and Jezebel and Ahab did more than all of the others before then to bring Baalism, the false religion of the Canaanites into the land. And as punishment on the land and the people going that direction, God raised up Elijah the prophet and said, I want you to go and speak to Ahab and tell him that for three years there's not going to be any rain whatsoever. There's not even going to be any dew from heaven that's going to fall in the night hours. The land is going to be parched and it is because of the sin of the land. God brought tragedy on the land because of the sin that Jezebel and Ahab had led them into. Now as far as today's time, I would be very uncomfortable saying that every flood or drought or national disaster that we see anywhere in the world is God's judgment. But I would be just as uncomfortable saying that some of the things we see going on in the world, some of the natural disasters we see going on in the world might not be God's judgment. We don't know. Some of them may be, some of them may not be. It was the way he worked in, in, in Old Testament times. We do know that because we're told that in the Scripture. And here in 2 Chronicles 7, God is describing all of this to Solomon in detail. And God is giving Solomon a prescription for healing and revival in the land for a fresh encounter with him. And what is the very first thing that we see here? We see that God's people are the key to the well-being of the land. God's people are the key. Now, they're not recognized as such. Isn't it ironic how in the world today the world wants to persecute the very people who are the ones who are the hope of the world. The very ones bringing the light of Christ. Folks, the real hope of America today is the church. And the world likes to persecute the very ones who are bringing the message of life. Now, oftentimes we see in the Bible that it's God's people themselves who need change, who need cleansing. I think of those seven letters in the, book, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. All but two of those churches, something was going on in those churches that they needed to repent of. And God said, if you don't, I'm going to deal with you. I think of the church at Ephesus. They were working so hard, but they had fallen out of love with Jesus. And he was calling them back to their first love. And he said, if you don't answer this call, I'm going to remove your candlestick. He was promising to take the church away. 1 Peter 4.17, the scripture says, The time has come that judgment should begin at the house of God. Folks, God's church in America today needs revival and renewal. You see, revival is not for the sinner. The sinner's got to be vived before he can be revived. He's got to come to spiritual life before that life can be renewed and revived. The lost person needs regeneration. 
The saint of God needs revival. You know, in the church, it's like we're depending on the world out there to get right. If we can only put the right people in office, and now don't get me wrong, we need to try to do that. Why would we want to turn the political process over to unbelievers? Why would believers in a land that can go to a voting box not want to be involved in that process? We ought to want to be salt and light in every single aspect of our society today. But folks, we can't count on all of those means. What God is asking of the church is that the church get right. Jesus didn't pray that the Father would take the church out of the world, but that He would take the world out of the church. I want you to understand it's a great privilege today to be a Christian. It's wonderful to say, I belong to Jesus. But folks, do we understand the responsibilities? So many people today with their lips saying, Jesus is Lord. But Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And Jesus went on to describe the fact that there are actually very few who are on their way to heaven, that the road to destruction is broad and wide, and there are many people traveling that way. But very few on that narrow road to eternal life. Do we understand what it means to be God's people, to be, to, be, to be the redeemed of the Lord? Who He's talking to here are those who indeed are the redeemed of the Lord. And that's who He's given this invitation to. Now after spelling out who He's talking to, the second thing I want you to see is the process. He outlines a process that He will use to bless the land. He says, if my people who are called by my name will do certain things. Did He say, if you'll post everything going on in the church on your social media, man, that's going to get the world's attention and that's going to bless the church. Is that what he said? No. Four things he gives in the process here. I'll spend the most time on the first because in the Hebrew, it's the one that's kind of in the driver's seat of all the others. First of all, we see that we are to be a humble people. He says, if my people will humble themselves. Now, folks, that ought to be very easy for believers to do. Because of what we know the Bible teaches about man's depravity. But that seems to be a difficult one, doesn't it? Let's think a moment about the two radically different aspects the Bible teaches about man. Okay? On the one hand, man is lifted up in the Bible. Genesis 1 created in the very image of God. God breathed a, a spirit into man's nostrils, something that he didn't do with any other, uh, other aspects of his creation. 
And he created man, male and female, in his image and gave them dominion. And the psalmist asked on one occasion, What is man that you are mindful of him? You've created him a little lower than the angels. And so on the one hand, Bible gives a very high view of man. Image of God. One theologian says that points to man's intellectual ability, his moral purity, his spiritual nature, his dominion over creation, his creative capabilities, the ability to make ethical choices and immortality. And then he goes on to write the Hebrew words for image and likeness of God refer to something similar but not identical to the thing that it represents And so Wayne Gruden goes on to say the words also mean, the words image of God also mean that we are to represent God in this world. Again, Jesus said you're to be salt and light. And so being made in the image of God creates a great deal about man. Without possessing those attributes that belong to God and only to God. At the same time, the Bible is stating something very wonderful about mankind. Now, of course, in the fall of man, the image of God was distorted without being lost. In redemption, some of that is recaptured. And then when Jesus comes back, we will realize what it means more fully to be in the image of God. But my point is, on the one hand, the Bible presents uh, the, the greatest image possible of man. But then on the other hand, the Bible is very honest about what has happened to mankind. That starts in Genesis 3, the fall of man. Where mankind becomes depraved and dead in his trespasses and sins. Folks, we need to understand the severity of our condition. Sometimes people have very shallow views of redemption. They look at redemption sort of like taking your child to to the pediatrician for a well visit. And the pediatrician checks out your child and says, Everything looks great, but your child is vitamin D deficient. So we just need to give a shot here or a pill here. Just, just a little band-aid. Just a little bit of icing on the cake. To, you know, their, their condition is pretty good. Just a little help. And there are people in the world today that look at salvation that way. That, hey, man's pretty good. He just, he just needs that little extra something. That's not the biblical image of conversion. The correct image would be going out into the graveyard and seeing those graves. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And folks, that's why the Bible speaks of conversion in terms of being born again. You and I don't need just a little something extra added. We need spiritual life given to us. We need to be born from above the way Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he'll not see the kingdom of God. Man needs something that radical. The spiritual birth from above. The, the, only the Holy Spirit can bring about in your life as he, as he humbles somebody and drives them to their knees and they see their woeful, sinful condition and they are drawn to salvation in Christ. And they're made new from the inside out. 
Now, folks, my point in connecting this with humility, when we understand that this is something only God can do, it ought to be easy to be humble. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't do one thing to say, God, look at me. I deserve to have my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I deserve salvation. Or God, let me help you out a little bit. I'll I'll add uh, to the cross as though it somehow or another wasn't sufficient. And of course we know it was. But when we understand that salvation is of the Lord, that except for the grace of God, I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. When I realize that it is all of God, and it's like what Jesus said, He's the vine, we're the branches, we can do nothing without Him. When we understand that and how much we need God for every breath we take in our salvation itself, when we understand all that, it ought to be easy to be humble before God it should be humility ought to be easy for the child of God some people struggle with that because they lay their lives down alongside somebody else they know and say compared to him or her I'm pretty good but folks one another we're not the standard Jesus Christ is the standard and when I lay my life down alongside the life of Christ I ought to be like Isaiah when Isaiah got that vision of God in the temple he cried out he said woe is me I am undone the reason we don't see revival in the church in America is because we haven't gotten low enough yet Everywhere around us we see an unhealthy pride. We see an arrogance in America. While we've even told God we think we know better about marriage than He does. And we see in society we've even hijacked the symbol, the sacred symbol that the covenant sign that God gave to Noah when Noah stepped off the boat. And look at how that's being used today. The pride in America. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. We need to be a humble people. Folks, that's the first thing God is calling for in this process. Second thing, we're to be a praying people. This one grows out of the humility aspect. If we truly see ourselves as God sees us, it'd not be very difficult to realize that we need to call upon the name of the Lord out of sheer desperation. In fact, Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, said, you ought to pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. You ought to see in your prayer that even your daily bread depends on God's provision. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Folks, we only stand because of the very grace of God. Leonard Ravenhill once said, The church is dying on her feet because she's not living on her knees. The power of prayer. What strongholds might be in your life that you need to address through prayer? 
Paul said to the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Third thing here, we're to be a seeking people. There's something profoundly active about seeking. We don't understand that word seeking. Too many of us are saved and satisfied. There's no seeking. There's only stagnation. And we're living off of yesterday's experiences. But seeking communicates something much different. The man on his face before God crying out. Because if God doesn't move in his life and manifest himself in his life. Then there is no hope for that man. That's the picture of seeking. Jesus going out into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying. That's the image of seeking. And God says to Solomon here, that's how his people are to be. That's how his people are to be. Folks, could you imagine the power of a church in America today that was on its face before God, on its knees before God Seeking God and seeking God's glory and nothing greater. What difference could that make? A huge difference. Fourthly, we are to be a repentant people. What about a people so desiring of God that anything whatsoever in their lives that doesn't glorify God, they won't cut out of their lives? Any thoughts, any motives, any words, any actions, one and all, they're put before God. And if God is not pleased with some aspect of your life, you cast it aside. You love God more than you love sin. What could God do in a person's life like that? You see, prayer without repentance is a waste of time. Remember what David said in, in the Psalms? He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Today people want purity without penance, cleansing without confession, revival without repentance. It doesn't happen that way. What could God do in a people repentance? Humble, praying, seeking, repentant. What could God do? Well, we don't have to wonder about that. He tells us. Third thing I want you to see this morning is the promise. He says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He says that he would hear. Now, uh, Isaiah 59, 1-3 points out that it's sin. It's a lack of all these other things in the process that keep him from hearing. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. But with sin out of the way, he says he would hear, he would forgive, and he would heal. In other words, after darkness, light. Post-tenebrous looks. After darkness, light. 
Folks, is our nation today in need of that? Is our nation in need of healing? Certainly, more so than I've ever seen in my life. But I want you to notice something. And don't miss this. In God's sovereignty and His providence, He has placed the key to revival and renewal in the hands of His people. God is essentially saying here, if you will, then I will. As a nation, we have two choices. Either Either God hears and heals or he confronts and condemns. Go home this afternoon and read Deuteronomy chapter 8. One passage among many I could have you turn to. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the children of Israel are about to go in to the promised land. Moses, of course, isn't going to be allowed to go with them. He's not going to be able to cross the Jordan and go in there. God's going to use Joshua to lead them in. And so Moses is using the, the book of Deuteronomy as Moses' speech to the generations of Israel who didn't see all the things that their parents saw. They didn't see all those mighty acts of God. And so Deuteronomy 8, well, all of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermons reminding those younger generations of what all God had done in their behalf. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 8, if you go into the new land and you listen to God and you obey Him and you honor Him, then God is going to establish you in that land and God is going to prosper you in that land. But if you go into that land and decide that you think you know better than God and break His commands and go your own way and do everything that all the other nations of the world have done, Moses told them, then surely God will bring you to an end just like He brought the other nations to an end. Blessings, curses. That's what 2 Chronicles 7.14 is all about. Folks, we are at a crossroads in America. We're at a crisis of belief in America. We now call evil good and good evil. And the people love it so. We value that which cannot save. Woodrow Wilson in his closing words to America said, Our civilization cannot survive materially unless we are redeemed and revived spiritually. I think of the ancient Greek myth about King Midas, the king of Phrygia in ancient Asia Minor. Midas had great ambitions for wealth and power and he believed that either one of the two could secure the other. He was able to do a favor to the Greek god of wine, Dionysius, by, by rescuing a satyr, a little demon-like creature that Dionysius was very fond of. Well, Dionysius wanted to reward Midas. He told Midas, I'll give you one wish. Whatever you wish for, I'll bring it to pass. Well, the opportunistic King Midas decided to take full advantage of that. He wanted everything he touched to turn to gold. 
Dionysius looked at him with a skeptical eye and he said, Are you sure you want me to grant you that wish? Midas said, Yes. So he said, Okay. Well, it started out great for King Midas. He enjoyed the fabulous wealth that was soon to be his. But one day out walking with his little daughter, he took his daughter by the hand and touched her and she turned to a statue of gold. He got very thirsty. He took a goblet with beverage inside and the goblet and beverage and everything turned to solid gold he kept trying to find something to drink and everything that he tried to drink would turn to solid gold nothing could satisfy his thirst he became famished he was looking for food he would pick up food to try to eat it would instantly turn to gold he told his servants you put the food in my mouth but that didn't work either as soon as they put the morsels of food in his mouth and the food touched his lips and his tongue it turned to pure gold he became desperate he went back to Dionysius and begged the mercy of Dionysius Dionysius said it's what you wanted Oh, but I was wrong. Please take it away. And Dionysius said, okay, I'll take it away. And everything that you've touched and that has turned to gold, if you will but take it to the river and and submerge it in the river and wash it, its former state will be restored. So that's what Midas did. The Midas touch, as we say today, turned out to be not a blessing but a curse likewise what we think we're doing in the nation today to produce blessing simply won't get us there it's only going to end up in a greater spiritual famine instead Second, Second Chronicles 7.14 is the key. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Folks, that's the way to blessing. And then there can be post tenebrous looks would you bow your heads in prayer please as you do so I want to challenge you this week as we think about America not only to pray for America and the leaders of America but pray for the church pray for the church folks tragically in many circles the church doesn't even preach the gospel anymore I hear of countless places you can go and the preacher doesn't even open the Bible. They don't even believe the Bible. How tragic. Pray for the church. You know in past centuries when great revival and awakenings came to either this country or England or portions of Europe, do you realize that revival... uh, for the church had such an effect on the land itself it is said that the police officers didn't have any work to do because there was no crime in the streets now how about that for a blessing 
pray for the church. And who's the church? You're the church. I'm the church. All those who are the redeemed of the Lord are the church. Pray for the church. And do you know this morning that you are the church? That you've been born again from above. Saved from the inside out. Made a new creation in Christ. If you don't know that, come forward this morning. I'd love to pray with you about that. There may be others here this morning looking for a church fellowship to be a part of where you can study the Bible with other believers. The altar's open if you want to pray for yourself, your family, your nation. Lord, touch our hearts again. Lord, we need your light out of darkness. Would you do it again? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.